Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. And welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. It's a medical scandal you might never have heard of, and it really goes to the heart of the trust we put in the NHS, that when we're sick enough to need a blood transfusion, the blood we get won't end up killing us. Yet over 2,800 people have died as a result of contaminated blood transfusions the NHS gave them in the 1970s and 80s. Some of them caught hepatitis, others contracted HIV. Many were children. Caroline Wheeler, the political editor at the Sunday Times, has written a book about what went so terribly wrong. Welcome to the bunker, Caroline. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well. Caroline, haemophiliacs, people whose blood doesn't clot when they're injured, play a large part in this tragedy. Tell us why. Yes, although it affects haemophiliacs, it's not exclusively haemophiliacs. And there were also just people that sort of got caught up in, you know, car accidents or giving birth like Anita Roddick that also got caught up in this scandal. But haemophiliacs very much bore the brunt of it, partly because they were so reliant on these blood products to help their blood to clot. Haemophiliacs basically have a coagulation factor, which is known as factor eight, missing from their blood. And so there was revolutionary advancements made in the 70s and 80s to create a sort of synthetic answer to that. And originally it was something called cryoprecipitate, which was a safer version of a kind of coagulation factor made of a single donor. But as advancements happened in sort of medicine, they found that they could get an even better product that had 10 times the power of cryoprecipitate if they pooled blood donations and treated them to a sort of chemical and centrifugal process, which distilled a really pure version of this particular coagulation factor. The problem with this was, was that it was often pooled from up to 20,000 donors, which meant that if just one of those people that donated blood, and it often came from the United States where donors were paid to give blood, then the entire batch would become infected. And that particularly had a resonance when it came to hepatitis C, but also HIV and AIDS. Why were we importing blood from the US? So, I mean, even the Sunday Times and the Yorkshire Post and other kind of media outlets were campaigning in the mid-70s for this particular type of factor eight concentrate to become more widespread and more used because it really revolutionised the way in which you could treat, in particular, haemophilia. It was something that could be used at home so people didn't need to be treated in hospital. But demand for this particular product far outstripped supply. And so we had to import this particular product from the United States. We tried to become self-sufficient in blood supplies in the United Kingdom. And in 1975, Lord Owen, who was former health minister, really led the way in trying to get Britain to become self-sufficient in its own blood products. But it, it's never actually happened. 
And despite originally putting in around half a million pounds to start developing the laboratories and the infrastructure in the UK to be able to change the way in which we manufactured this particular product to make it more plentiful here, we never achieved it. So we continued to import from the United States for a a long period of time. And one of the problems was that it was quite often coming from places like prisons where people were donating quantities of blood and where they were more likely to have infections like hepatitis. Why wasn't the blood screened? Or was that not possible at the time? It's a really good question. And actually, it was a fantastic bit of pioneering journalism done back in 1975 by the ITV programme World in Action. And um, it was certainly a sort of staple of my childhood growing up. And they really investigated this issue And they actually went to some of the clinics that were taking donations, often in sort of the skid row areas of cities, like, for example, San Francisco. And what they found was that the screening process really amounted to a kind of questionnaire, people being asked about their lifestyle choices. And of course, when you're paying sort of $7 for a pint of blood, you quickly become a magnet for people that really need that money. So often it was people arriving at these clinics who had drug addictions, who were alcoholics. There was even a term coined for it, which was called ooze for booze that would turn up. And of course, they weren't always as honest as they should have been whilst answering some of those questions. Questions, for example, have you had a drink in the last 24 hours? Questions about their use of drugs. They simply answered the question no. And of course, they were ticked as being clean or or certainly thought to be clean. And that blood was considered safe and therefore included in the pool donations and then imported to the United Kingdom. And when did it become apparent that haemophiliacs were becoming infected with hepatitis and with HIV as a result of these transfusions? So there's always been concerns around hepatitis in the blood supply because it was very difficult to screen for it at the time. And even as far back as the early 1970s, Richard Titmus, a great writer about sort of social affairs at the time, wrote a book warning about the impact and the risk of infection of hepatitis in blood. But in terms of the factor eight concentrates itself being imported, really the earliest warnings were indeed in 1975 that this was becoming a problem. They had identified a group of 60 haemophiliacs at that time who had been in the receipt of a particular type of factor eight concentrate called hemophil that had experienced an outbreak of hepatitis C. And indeed, it was written about in the Lancet at that point, warning that there did appear to be concerns that this particular type of blood product may have been contaminated with hepatitis C. But the transfusions weren't stopped. No, the transfusions weren't stopped. And as one of the the stories that we I tell in the book, actually on the back of the 1975 World in Action documentary, is a young man called Keith Proud, who's interviewed for the program, and he talks in quite a kind of you know confident and in depth way about how this particular type of blood product had transformed his life and had made dealing with his haemophilia much easier, even though he had himself been suffering from the effects of hepatitis C. He said it was a risk that he wanted to take. Sadly, in Keith's case, it was a risk that he took, but he paid with his life. And he, I found through tracing back his medical records, died at the age of 37. And you write about a haemophiliac teenager called Aid, who was told that he had HIV in the 1980s in the most callous way. Tell us a bit more about that. So Aid was one of the pupils at a school called Trelaws. 
in Alton in Hampshire. And Trelaws was a school that was formed very much with the idea of helping particularly youngsters with disabilities to be able to lead some kind of normal life. It had a health centre on site. And in the 1950s, particularly like 1958 onwards, it became a sort of magnet for more and more haemophiliac children because it offered them an opportunity to have proper schooling for the first time. Often they wouldn't have been able to go to school like ordinary children would have missed large swathes of time at school because they were being treated for their condition in hospital. And Aid was one of the youngsters that started at that school actually in the early 80s. And he was 15 when he discovered that he had been infected with HIV. He had previously been on a trial at the school for some of the factor eight concentrate products. And he was summoned one spring day in 1985 to the room with the haemophilia director there who basically with a group of five of them gathered was there to tell them which of them had been infected with the HIV virus. And how it was done was that Dr. Aaron Stamp, who was the director of haematology at the school, pointed at the boys in turn and said, you have, you haven't, you have. And that was how Aid found out he'd been infected. He was the last of the five boys to receive those fateful words, you have. And this was at a time when HIV was poorly understood. There was no effective treatment and it was a terrible taboo, wasn't it? terrible taboo. I mean, they were so scared about the sort of news leaking out about the school's involvement and the school having children with HIV that the boys were told to keep it a secret to not even talk to their teachers about having this particular illness. And it must have just been a horrendous time for them. If you can just imagine having been told at age 15 that you probably have six months to a year left to live, you're at a boarding school away from your family Aid at the time had been adopted, but was becoming more and more estranged from his adoptive mother. He had no one to turn to. And he told me for the book that uh, he ended up back in a science class within sort of 20 minutes of that news being imparted to him, even though, you know, he quite rightly, he felt that his life was falling apart. And as you say, it wasn't just haemophiliacs who became infected because other blood transfusions were contaminated too. Tell us about the incredibly sad story of Colin Smith, who was infected when he was a baby. Gosh, it's always the one that sort of breaks my heart the most, really. No, it did mine as well. I was crying when I read this in your book. It really does. And and his family are just so unbelievably strong and have conducted themselves throughout this campaign with such integrity and warmth that it sort of always brings a kind of lump to my throat thinking about him. But yes, Colin was 10 months old when he went into hospital for a routine operation. And he again received uh, the blood product to help his blood clot. And he was basically infected with HIV. And his parents, I mean, these are some of the stories that you, you just find absolutely staggering. His parents were told in a busy hospital corridor that their son had contracted HIV. And again, were told that the prognosis was particularly dire and that he wasn't expected to live very long. In fact, Colin died when he was seven. And I think what's just so tragic in his particular case was that the community around him turned on him and his family. There was so much stigma around HIV at the time that his parents had to effectively move home. His dad had to leave his job. And, you know, his dad, Colin, it was also Colin, tells a particular story about 
one of the days when the word AIDS were daubed on the family's front door and he got up in the middle of the night to paint it so that the other children didn't wake to see it in the morning. And of course, he's still there with a paintbrush in hand the next morning and the children come out and sort of say, Dad, what are you doing? And uh, he says, oh, I'm just changing the colour of the front door. Your mum didn't like it much. And, you know, that was the kind of courage that they showed in the face of this absolute appalling sort of trolling that they got as a consequence. And just it just breaks my heart that at the very moment that this family needed all of the love and all of the support and all of the care of those around them, they were just left as pariahs to deal with something as appalling as a child, not only dying, but dying of something in such a horrific and, you know, appalling way. The people who were infected have often been unable to work because they've become sick and they've lived with the likelihood of an early death and all that that brings in terms of trauma. What support have they had? Well, I've charted this throughout the book and really it's been piecemeal support throughout the sort of decades and and largely only ever given after there's been an intervention in court. They've been given what we call ex gratia payments, which means it was never a compensation payment because there was never an acceptance by the state or anyone else of fault or liability. The government did set up a series of support agencies in effect. But as I say, the support that they received was often very piecemeal, a few pounds here and there, but never an actual recognition of the suffering that they've gone through, the mental anguish that they've endured, and also just the loss of earnings, the loss of income. There is an inquiry into compensation for these people going on now. It's due soon. Has the government been dragging its feet on this? Because some of these people were infected nearly half a century ago. Many of them, as you say, have died. Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, says the compensation bill will be very large. How have the government behaved in all this? Well, the inquiry was called in 2017, and it has continued to take evidence right up until February this year. And in actual fact, there were a number of ministers that were called back to give evidence in July. I can't speak for Sir Brian Langstaff, who is the chairman of the inquiry, but reading between the lines of why he did that, and he did recall Jeremy Hunt and the Prime Minister to give evidence again in July, I think that was done because he was frustrated that he felt that the government was not responding quickly enough um, to his calls for compensation. Now, he has given two reports since the inquiry started. The first one last summer where he recommended interim compensation payments of £100,000 be made to the affected, but also to the bereaved spouses of those affected. The government did do that, and payments were received back in October. A second interim compensation recommendation was made by Sir Brian at Easter time this year. He wanted those payments, and again, I stress they're only interim payments, to be made to both the orphans, but also the parents of children who had died as a consequence of this tragedy. That recommendation has not been agreed to by the government. The government claimed that they will not do anything further until the entire report is filed by Sir Brian, which we're not now expecting until March. But there have been some concerns around the edges on this because the government under Penny Morden, who was Paymaster General at the time, commissioned what was called a compensation framework study. The ambition being that a compensation system would be up and running so that it could coterminously start 
giving money to people as soon as the inquiry ended. That compensation framework and the recommendations made around that was made over a year ago now, and the government had promised that it would respond imminently to those recommendations as soon as they were made. We're still waiting to hear from the government on that. And I think that that is where the anger lies and why people feel that, yes, the government is dragging its feet. And I think there are real concerns now, particularly because the timetable for the inquiry coming back has changed from this autumn to March, that if we do end up having an early general election in the spring, that this issue could easily be kicked down the road again and could end up becoming Labour's problem. And of course, if that happens, there is always a danger that Labour will want to look at the issue in the round all over again and there will be further delays. And as you so rightly say, people are still dying. They're dying at the rate of one every four days. And during the course of writing the book, two of the central characters died in March this year. There are only 10 characters in the book and two of them died as I was writing. Is it useful to talk about blame? Or is there very little point at this stage in thinking about who was responsible, whether standards should have been different? Is it too far away now for there to be effective to look at what happened? I think it's going to be really difficult to apportion blame. I think many of those that were involved at the time where those crucial decisions were being made, and you know, I would point to the fact that we didn't reach self-sufficiency as being a really pivotal decision in particular, that could have stopped the issues around AIDS entering the blood supply, perhaps having such catastrophic consequences as it did. But it was a long time ago, and many of those people involved in the decision-making process are no longer with us. I interviewed Theresa May for the book, who was the Prime Minister that finally called the public inquiry in 2017. And she told me that she thought it was hugely unlikely that any individual would be held accountable or responsible for this particular tragedy. She pointed to the sort of Hillsborough inquiry where there have been many, many opportunities for charges to be laid against uh, Duckenfield, for example, and yet that still hasn't come to fruition largely because of the passage of time. But I don't think that that means that the inquiry itself is not a very fruitful exercise. I think it would mean a lot to the families of those that have been caught up in this particular disaster to really understand why certain decisions were made and why certain things happened. Um, And even if there aren't people that are still alive today that will be held account or held responsible for them, I think they want to know, have an understanding of where things went wrong, not only because they hope that people will learn the lessons from this disaster, but also I think there are wider lessons to be learned from this, which is and this is something that you know I've experienced covering this for more than 20 years, is that there is a tendency when things like this happen for the state, as Jeremy Hunt described it in his evidence, to close around a lie. And I think this is just evidence of the government being extraordinarily defensive and really putting its own response to a crisis ahead of the human tragedy and suffering of those that initially it was trying to help. And I think that that's a huge, huge lesson that can be learned from this particular disaster. Could this happen again? I don't mean in terms of could there be another medical scandal, because sadly, there will always be medical scandals of one kind or another. But could blood be contaminated in this way again without our realising it? I think there's real concern that that is possible. And certainly it's something that Lord Owen, the health minister that was so active in the 1970s in terms of trying to 
ensure that we had self-sufficiency in this UK. He has told me privately that, yes, he's very worried about it, partly because we've now outsourced some of our sort of blood supply opportunities to China. And so yet again, we are not self-sufficient in these particular blood supplies, which means that we are always going to be dependent on others to have what we need to fulfill you know, all of the things that we need to, whether it be with haemophiliacs or whether it be with people, you know, having car accidents or whatever, there is still a dependency on sort of outside forces, if you like. So I think, yes, I think there is a risk that this could always happen again. And I think that, again, is something that those that have been caught up in this tragedy would want assurances on and would want to know could not happen again. But I think at the moment, the question is still very much there. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Death in the Blood is published by Headline. And you can support The Bunker by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and contributing as little as £3 a month. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate. The assistant producer was Adam Wright, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.